0: This is a download from BFM 89.9, the business station. It's Fun Friday. My name is Jeff Sandu. Is this intro going to be sensible, Matt? Yes, yes, I promise it's oh. going to be all right. All right. Over the last couple of weeks, Culture Pops' Matt Armitage has taken us to what he considers to be heaven and hell. He's shown us two versions of the future based on the same ideas and technology. One where technology extends freedom and prosperity to everyone, and another where an elite has effectively enslaved the majority. But... Is there any value to us exploring these flights of fancy? Let's get Matt's planing yet again. Is this because you've seen Blade Runner 2049, Matt?
1: Hey, Jeff. Yes, you are along the right lines. Uh, for the last couple of weeks on the show, we have been talking about fiction. That's true. Um, but anything to do with the the future is always going to be a, a fiction, unless you're one of those people who thinks that our destiny is already written or we're living in some kind of computer simulation. So what I try when I've got my futurist hat on and what a lot of other futurists try to do is to put the technology that we have, the social and the political movements that are around us at the time, and to imagine how those things may progress and evolve.
0: In the same way we've talked on the show about how sci-fi can influence the future. I mean, the idea of scientists brought up on Star Trek trying to build warp drives.
1: Yeah, exactly. But it's actually something a little bit more than that. So for example, I was uh, talking about last week's show with a listener um, because I actually met one and I asked if he found it uh, too gloomy and today's show isn't going to be gloomy by the way. So the listener, and I should say hello to Brian from masses and congrats on your sneak event last week. It was great. So, Brian told me that he thinks people should consider the kind of scenarios we were discussing last week, that he thinks people are too often complacent in the face of these kind of nudges and developments with technology.
0: Will the future be very similar to the present?
1: Well, exactly that. I think one of the things that I mentioned on the Utopia episode, the first fiction one we did, and if you haven't heard that, you can head over to our archives and download the uh, the podcast. Uh, on the Utopia episode, I mentioned that huge advances in technology can be pretty much invisible when you're looking from the outside. So, for example, if you're looking at the the World 2010 from the, the World 2000, it's probably not going to look very different. But the adoption of things like smartphones, high-speed broadband, and high-speed mobile internet had already started to make huge changes to the way that we work and the way that we access information. So in the year, year 2000, people were contemplating what a knowledge economy might look like. But by 2010, we were already starting to swim in that kind of stream of data. Uh, if you want kind of a simpler example, you can take two identical cars, cars rather, one that has airbags, one that doesn't. Both cars will look the same. They'll drive the same. They'll cost pretty much the same. But if you have an accident in one of them, there's going to be a huge difference. Uh, you might say that they were fundamentally different in that one car could actually save your life and the other probably wouldn't. But on the surface, there's nothing to see between the two of them. And a lot of the technology that we have, a lot of these developments year to year, are like that. They're just invisible.
0: Essentially, what role does fiction play?
1: Okay, so I can't take credit for this idea. It's not unique to me. You know, In technology, we talk about disruption a lot to the point where everyone is kind of sick of it. So you know when we do king of the king of the crowd in geeks for example everything we talk about is a disruption and a, a transformation even when it's something as stupid as a, a smart salt cellar with an app that costs 100 US dollars so at risk of clubbing this overused term one more time one of the things that future fiction shows like the ones we did over the past couple of weeks one of the things they can do is to actually disrupt people's view of the future.
0: We're talking about the future. So what is there to disrupt? Even Elon Musk can't disrupt what what has happened yet.
1: Yeah, you know, and that's the theme that we've come back to a lot recently. It's this issue of who has power. It's easy to assume that, you know, we as little people have no power and that they, whoever they are, have all of the power. And one of the reasons that I think you get people like Elon Musk making all these pronouncements is because he's trying to influence the future. He's trying to, you know, bend it to his will. And it's almost a confidence thing. When you make enough people believe that something is going to happen, then some people will actually find a way to do it. So for example, you know, he talked about the hyperloop. Now people are actually building the hyperloop and now other people are building hyperloops. He sees the market potential of building one himself. So the flip side of that, of course, is that you hope that the rest of the people are passive enough to accept that, you know, this is just some kind of road that we're on and that the future they've designed are going to be the stops that appear along the way. Unfortunately, the model works just as well for things that are, are negative as it does for the things that are positive, like a, a hyperloop.
0: Like you telling us that there will be no jobs in the future.
1: Yeah, sure. Guilty as charged. It really is a dangerous path. When you float an idea like that, that machines and artificial intelligence will take over all of our jobs, then you also include the idea that it's an inevitability that it will happen and that there's no point in
0: people fighting it. In that case, tell us then, will machines take all our jobs?
1: Yes. Um, but that's not a reason to be passive and to accept it. So, for example, there's Bill Gates' idea about um, the robot tax. Now, I don't think it's a great idea um, for, for that kind of tax in that structure. But I do agree with him that we should shift the tax burden to companies for creating unemployment because underemployment is now going to be a cost of production. And as a producer, you still need a consumer class to buy your products. So there has to be something that rebalances that scale.
0: And what if the scales aren't rebalanced?
1: Well, that's where where it can help to have these nudges, to, to give us a jolt to stop us sleepwalking into a future that someone else is writing for us. Because it doesn't matter who it is. It doesn't matter whether it's a Zuckerberg, Musk, a Trump, a Sanders, a Gates, even the ghost of Steve Jobs. They all have their own agendas. They all want to have greater or small amounts of social benefit accruing from those changes. But their vision of the future, any of them, is not necessarily where you or I want to live. So we have to play our own part, our own role in determining that future. Um, For example, one of the arguments in favor of automation is that economists argue that new industries will emerge to absorb the workers whose jobs are now obsolete, But that also has to be incentivized. There has to be a bunch of entrepreneurs with the vision and the appetite for risk to actually put those people to work. So we don't want to end up with a situation where we all end up as road sweepers and toilet attendants because human labor is of so little value that for menial tasks, we're actually cheaper to run than a robot. Mm -hmm.
0: You you mentioned that people often consider the future to be a road, that it's a journey and Even if it doesn't have an end point, it does have stops along the way. And this is one
1: of the ways that people can be manipulated. It's about putting images in people's heads. Uh, The idea that we're on a kind of road to the future is a false one. Uh, A road is something you take from a starting point to a destination. But that's not something that's true of the future. So uh, take last week, for example... I made a deliberate choice when I said that ordinary people might up, uh, might end up living in coffin cubicles. Now I could just have said pod hotels or hostels because it's pretty much the same thing. But pod hotels while they're cramped, they still sound a bit cool and futuristic and they're part of that Japanese convenience culture thing that a lot of people find so fascinating. Coffin cubicles on the other hand are pretty much, you know, the Hong Kong equivalent of Skid Row, so by using that example, I was able to disrupt the image that some people have of the future being shiny and clean for something that is you know dirtier and grimier and kind of hopeless so it 's portraying the future or this kind of future as a place that you don 't want to end up so it 's very much about this idea of the future being an unwritten road, so it's you know if you imagine your're you're sitting in a car. If you're on a road to the future, the road doesn't really stretch much further than the corner in front of you. There will be stops along the way, but they're not written either. So no matter what people like me or politicians or business people would like you to believe, that future is unwritten and you can be part of shaping that future.
0: Now we'll go for a short break. I'm with Culture Pop's Matt Armitage talking about science fiction and the, the road to reality. Huh. BFM 89.9. Break from midfield, BFM 89.9. And we're back. My name is Jeff Sandu, together with Culture Pops, Matt Armitage. And we're talking about uh, science fiction uh, and also the the road to reality. Uh, Matt, you promised uh, that on today's show, it wouldn't be gloomy, but it's all been doom and destruction before the break. Are the clouds parting here, Matt? Is the sun about to shine?
1: Yes. Uh, we are heading out of the inclement weather into something a little more balmy. And it goes back to uh, what you mentioned at the top of the, the show, which is, have I seen Blade Runner 2049? I have. And I thought it would be fun to spend the next 10 minutes giving out plot spoilers. OK, I think probably about half our listeners just switched stations. Um, <laughs> no, I am joking There there is depravity to which even I will not stoop. But I do want to talk about science fiction, you know, and we have talked about science fiction many times on the show and how it directly influences not just the way we think about the future, but also the things that science explores and that innovators try to invent and the attempts that all of these people make to actually reach the future that has been shown, designed in those books and films.
0: All right. Okay. <clears throat> Yes, we have spoken about that. Listeners might ask why we need to talk about it again.
1: Well, they probably wouldn't say that because they're not as rude as you are. And they know that even if I do repeat myself, you know, I make it entertaining. Yep, that was a wall of silence. Um, In any case, I don't have to justify myself to the likes of you, Mr. Presenter. So this is actually about the work that scientists and futurists do in collaboration with screenwriters and movie directors to bring forward their coherent vision of the future. So the original Blade Runner is an obvious starting point because of the the intricacy and the intent in designing that film. And then as well in unraveling all of that in the sequel, which I'm not going to give spoilers about if you haven't seen it. So if anyone is interested in in knowing a bit more about the history of movies and science, then I can cram into this show. There's a great piece up at uh, slate.com. Uh, I think we can uh, post the, leak, uh, the link on the Geeks page, and I'll put it up on uh, the Culture Pop page as well. The article is called Blade Runner and the Power of Sci-Fi Building," and it's written by a guy called uh, Kevin Bankston. And it's about what I was discussing before the break. It's about the power that fictional futures have to shape our reality.
0: Mm. And then there are thousands of sci-fi movies out there. Are we going to cherry-pick here?
1: Well, I'm going to stick with two of the three that Slate.com discusses. So 2001 A Space Odyssey and Blade Runner, largely because Slate's writers have done all the heavy lifting for me, so I can crib from their notes. Um, We will mention a third uh, uh, minority report, which um, serendipitously I watched again a couple of weeks ago. Um, And it's not to say that there aren't other equally deserving choices. Um, There are a lot of writers and directors, uh, particularly people like Christopher Nolan, who pay huge amounts of care to the accuracy of the science that underpins movies like Interstellar and Inception. And they work very closely with leading physicists and scientists from other disciplines. On the flip side of that, there are movies like Jean-Claude Van Damme's Time Cop, um, which don't do any of those things. Um, But in a lot of cases, the discussions with the scientists actually predate the script and can dictate the direction of the film as was the case with some of the examples that we're going to mention here.
0: Let's start with the 2001 classic sci-fi uh, by Stanley Kubrick.
1: Well, I'm not alone in saying that I find this movie this movie beautiful but baffling, um, and it's still quite unbelievable that it was made in 1968. So it's not so much that it was spot on with its predictions, you know, the turn of the millennium didn't take us all off to the stars or bring us into the orbit of uh, sociopathic computers, But it was accurate in some areas. It predicts things like digital newspapers, which look a little like tablet computers. You see kind of basic portable phones. But most of all, the film predicted the shrinking of computers. Uh, At that time in the 1960s, computers were still building-sized. That Hal had a voice and compact control panels foreshadows that kind of shrinking of computer technology that really took kind of rapid pace in the 1970s and moved into the personal computing boom. And then you look today and we, you know, we're talking about nanobots. So you have to think how far we've come from machines that weighed tons and could only do fairly basic, you know, statistical calculations to little machines that we're starting to think about putting into our bodies and into our bloodstream.
0: And how did Kubrick achieve that vision?
1: One of the most interesting aspects is actually how closely companies are willing to work with directors to realize this kind of coherent vision of the future. Uh, Space Odyssey saw um, collaborations with companies like IBM, Bell, GE, Honeywell, all the the, the tech giants of their time, you know, the, the Facebooks and the uh, Googles of their day. And part of that association was because of the team that Kubrick assembled. So rather than go down the usual path of set designers and makeup artists. He went industrial. Aeronautics engineers, visual artists who dealt with the lighting, people who engineered things rather than just building some, you know, Star Trekky cardboard sets with a man who goes whoosh every time a door opens. So even the spacesuits in the movie were helped along by people who had worked on NASA's genuine astronaut suits. So even the stitching mirrors, the the stitching on the NASA suits that helps to preserve the oxygen. So it's no wonder that when conspiracy theories about the moon landings began to circulate, you know, a lot of people said that Kubrick was the director and he'd helped NASA to to fake the landings and the footage. Um, Because again, he was very close to NASA most crucial of all of his tech scene, his tech team seems to be the work of two nasa scientists guys called fred aldway and harry lang and they worked on the picture full time for 2 years and were instrumental in recruiting a lot of the brands i mentioned before because they were actually futurists and consultants for those brands.
0: Does the vision hold up in
1: widescreen? Well, I mean, I take it you mean that the, in terms of that kind of wider cultural focus. Um, but no, it, it doesn't need to. The movie has quite a narrow focus, which allowed them to go um, in depth with the science and technology that relate to uh, the things that the movie moves through. So, you know, there's a, a trade Um For example, last week, I tried to go quite wide with my dystopia. And that means I have to be a little shallow in the depth and the detail. So if you'd pressed me for more detail on most things, it would have started to become a lot less holistic and, you know, you'd start to see the cracks. So by necessity, with anything future related, there are always going to be these smoke and mirrors but it doesn't mean that one approach is more relevant than another. And
0: Blade Runner is an example of that wider, more shallow approach. Yeah, and I
1: I love the direction that its vision came from, um, because the direction actually came from a car designer, a guy called uh, Sid Mead, who worked on futuristic concept cars for Ford. And a lot of people might wonder what, relevance a car designer has, especially when it comes to developing a world as dense as the one that was in Blade Runner or even the the, um, the sequel that's just come out. But car designers are natural futurists. Um, I've spoken to some of BMW's leading designers in the past. I've been inside Nissan's top secret concept lab in Tokyo, and I've spoken to, to the director of that lab. And to design cars, you have to see the future. And I've always found that car designers are really, really good at encapsulating that vision, because you have to design the car to fit into that future. You have to understand where the architecture and infrastructure are headed. You have to anticipate what trends are going to happen and what people's needs are. I mean, there's it's not by accident that cars have got larger and evolved with lots of cup holders. It's because this is what people are demanding. But These guys have to anticipate those demands. So they have to imagine where all the other technology is headed as well. And Sid Mead did that for Blade Runner with obsessive detail down to individual advertising hoardings and even the lighting and the price tags on parking meters. You know, Mm. how much it would cost per second to park or per minute to park. Was it accurate? I mean, the Blade Runner vision is a lot darker than most of our realities, but um, it's not far off to, um, if you look at the kind of the neon and the density of people, you have that super bright element of cities like New York or Bangkok or London, yet you have that coffin cubicle aspect of Hong Kong that people are being priced out of the market, they're being crowded out, that land is being filled up and there's nowhere to build except up. So you have this idea of, Affluence, extreme affluence, and extreme poverty. So, you know, tech-wise, they're probably a little bit off. Nobody wants public video phones. We don't even want um, personal ones. But you can see that it is our world. In the same way that the the, the new movie Twenty Forty Nine undoes a lot of our world. So you're you're fascinated by the reverse case, by the desolation and the destruction, and the realization that technology didn't save the world. And In both films, it's not spoon-fed to you. You aren't really being told why things are like this. You just have to accept that this is the reality.
0: Mm, And we're slightly running out of time, as usual, Matt, but can you sum up the effect of science fiction, especially movies, has on the way we live?
1: Well, very quickly, I'll bring up the the minority report. So Spielberg wanted to do both. He wanted to go deep and he wanted to, to go wide. He didn't want to create science fiction. He wanted to create the reality of the future. And I think Minority Report doesn 't really get the respect it deserves maybe it 's not old enough yet to to have that kind of status of two thousand and one or, or Blade Runner and we tend to remember it for smaller things like the advertising targeting and of course you know those hand waving gestures in front of control screens so the production designer alex mcdowell he 's actually gone on to build an academic syllabus around the film, um, so big is its influence that It has apparently inspired more than 100 patents, although I haven't had time to track those down. Um, Perhaps partly because it was a product of the early digital era, it's quite on point with technology like wearables, retina scanning, and, you know, these really pervasive targeted ads. And I think our current climate of global political turmoil has also led to an increase in the numbers of people worldwide who are locked up for crimes they might commit, which is the central premise of minority report, you're not being locked up for things you have done, you're being locked up for things you might do. So especially when we see the word terrorism raised, a lot of people are being uh, locked up for crimes that they might commit. So there is this question in our society of that same push and pull that they show in the film. And a lot of the technology, even uh, things like gesture control, which are uh, quite innocuous, it's something that we want because it looks cool, they're not necessarily the way that technology should be headed. Um, apparently Tom Cruise had to take loads of rest breaks during filming because his arms got so tired, <laughs> waving them around to control computer screens. And I'm pretty sure that Tom Cruise is quite a bit fitter than most of the, the rest of us. So, you know, it really is a case of being careful what you wish for. Um, before I sign off, if you are interested in this whole idea of science and movies colliding, Um, you might want to check out a podcast called Science-ish where actual scientists who are also movie buffs take individual movies and uh, in each episode and they discuss the science behind it and, you know, whether it's junk science, whether it's fantasy, whether whether it's real. So that's really worth a listen
0: if you've enjoyed today's show. Alright, man stage there talking to us from the future, of course, as always. Uh, talking about science fiction and the road to, uh, and its road to reality. Uh, we'll be right back with Geeks after this. BFM 89.9
1: Thank you for listening to this podcast To find more great interviews, go to bfm.my or find us on iTunes BFM 89.9 The Business Station